Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. Legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. First ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. To this is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Welcome to the show. As always, we're here for our friends at Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Well, today we're joined by a former AFL number one draft pick and a former star at one of the biggest sporting clubs in Australia. Josh Fraser played 200 games for Collingwood, including the 2002 and 2003 Grand Finals, before joining Gold Coast for another 18. He was an agile ruckman who could go forward, and he's gone on to enter the coaching ranks and has been heralded for helping revive the Northern Bull Ants in the VFL. Josh, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, pleasure, Sam. Thanks for having me. So this VFL season, like most things in life right now, it's been a real exercise in patience, I imagine, for you as the coach. Yeah, it has been. It's um, Look, I think we've all proved to become pretty good at embracing and adapting to change in recent times. And this year's been no different. It's certainly been frustrating. I mean, to, to think that with what we went through last year, that we were still going to have interruptions in the current climate um, is, is very frustrating. But, um, you know, it's something we're all dealing with. And we'd love to be playing footy on a weekly basis, but um, we've come to realise that it's more a week-to-week proposition. And um, look, we're hopeful of getting back to, to finish the season off. But what that looks like and when that's going to happen, um, at the moment, it's anyone's guess. Indeed. And how is it tested you personally as a senior coach because a lot of the stuff we're confronting in whether it be in sport like this or in life are testing us in areas we we didn't know we would be tested so has it really challenged your skill set and how you get around your your playing group yeah it has yeah no doubt about that and look I think as a as a coach and particularly senior coach you're always mindful and thinking of others and and how you can help them and this has been made a little bit more challenging by the fact that you can't always be face to face with people so I think that layer's you know, proved to be a bit difficult and um, yeah I think just the well-being and the care that you have for your playing group and, and finding ways to connect with them when you can't actually get face to face has been probably the biggest challenge um, trying to stimulate them and keep their heads in footy and also you know in many cases respect that some of these guys probably just want to switch off a little bit as well um, and the VFL landscape completely different again when you have a, a number of players on the tools or you know applying themselves in apprenticeships and trades um, so for them footy's a little bit of a release and a little bit of an outlet so so you really 
treating them all on an individual case-by-case basis. But, um, you know, I think our coaching group's done a pretty good job at, at connecting the players whilst in lockdown. And, um, you know, high-performance and conditioning staff's done a great job in, in giving them programs to keep them accountable to, to staying fit, ready to go, should we come out of this lockdown and have to play. Yeah, and it was all turned upside down, obviously, last season in a big way, that enormous restructure of the second tier. Carlton, in your instance, pulling the rug out last year and ending their um, alliance with the club. I mean, not many people at all gave you a chance of keeping this ship upright, Josh, the Northern Bullland ship I speak of. No, you're right. Um, I think we would have been um, you know, a million to one to keep the Bullands up and going. And, you know, I guess uh, when that decision was made um, by Carlton, it, it really did, you know, in effect signal the death of a footy club at over 130 years old. And um, that was something that was worth fighting for. And you know, for myself at the time, I also lost my position at the Blues as a development coach there. And, um, mm. you know, it gave me some time to sink my teeth into a project and, and really help a group of people who, you know, I saw impacted a lot by death of potential death of a footy club. So, um, you know, it's a great achievement for us to, to get it back up and going. And then I guess once we got the license up and, and running and then it really dawned on us, you know, that we had to go and staff a footy program, um, go and engage with some key stakeholders, um, get some corporate support, generate membership, all the things that, you know, footy clubs that are up and running, I wouldn't say take for granted, but that's just part of their day-to-day operations. And for us, it was effective. We all knew and we had to re-establish it and start it again. Um, but again, it was a, a cause worth fighting for. And um, you know, arguably, this has been one of the most rewarding experiences I've been in, having a, a pretty important part to play as a senior coach, but also getting some great experience behind the scenes in the operational space of a footy club. Yeah, and just on that, Josh, obviously, the Bull Ants would have a rusted-on supporter group, but the corporate support and, I guess, the, the realities of a professional sporting club are another, another sort of dimension again on top of that. How real is the ongoing threat of COVID for, obviously, a standalone club such as the Bull Ants. I mean, what's the health of the club look like at the moment? Oh, look, it is a significant threat. There's no doubt about that. I mean, it's a threat to footy clubs that would have considered themselves incredibly viable two or three years ago. They're probably facing enormous challenges now and and we're no different. I mean, we've done a fantastic job to to get ourselves up and running and we were really confident heading into this season what our financial position would look like and we feel like we're going to be um, okay. But, um, you know, again, you're trying to forecast and you're trying to go and engage new um, networks and new corporate partners and they're all facing their own challenges so really it's again you're, you're trying to form strong partnerships in the community um, you know even during these lockdown times we're, we're trying to figure out ways how we can deliver a, a service to our, our corporate um, partners and doing that when you can't actually get together so we've had to get really creative with that side of things but you know our membership's a really important part of our footy club and as you mentioned Sam we Preston's got a rusted on supporter base that dates back many years and we've been overwhelmed with the support that they've thrown our way um, and we're hopeful in time that the footy club will generate new supporters and um, you know we I guess bring through a new era of Bullance fans in um, in the northern suburbs. So that's the financial position Josh what about the ladder position now I noticed you, you reeled off three in a row at one point there and I had to laugh at the irony the club's first win this season came against Carlton I mean some things are just meant to be. <laughs> yeah it was it was interesting I mean there was a, a fair bit made of that your game and I can I can say honestly that we didn't we didn't reference it a hell of a lot. I think our playing group was well aware of, you know, the occasion. But, um, you know, I felt like we were building towards that performance. You know, you got to consider, too, for our footy club, A, we're a new footy club, but we are the least experienced playing group in the VFL um, and we're the youngest playing group in the VFL and we're coming up against AFL Alliance sides who are... Mm you know, a large percentage of their list are full-time um, footballers. So we've had some outstanding wins along the way. Um, I've been equally 
as proud of our performances early in the year when we didn't get results. I thought, you know, when you look at the sides we'd played, they were all well entrenched in the top eight and they're sides that have traditionally played VFL finals football. So we came up against some, some really good teams and I just thought the growth and the investment our playing group showed always felt like we are on the right track. And um, yeah, we were able to reel off three really good wins in a row. Um, we're looking forward to going up to Queensland and playing Southport and then um, into lockdown we went. So um, yeah, it's been uh, it's been one of those years where you've really had to enjoy um, your little wins along the way in your moments um, because you never quite knew what the next week was going to throw up. But I've been incredibly proud of what our playing group and our footy club more broadly has been able to do. And um, yeah, I think we've given ourselves or the club's given itself a great base to build from. You might not have mentioned it in the build-up to the Carlton game, but did you sense your players lifted for it? I mean, they're human after all. Um, it's a It's a difficult one to answer. They Look, they may have. I, I didn't feel like it was an extra special performance. I right. think it was something we were building towards. Um, I think when the siren went, there was no doubt maybe a little bit more excitement. And given it was our first win, maybe mm. it was going to always be exciting anyway. But, um, you know, the irony wasn't lost on anyone. Um, and look, Carlton effectively did in the alignment, um, probably for many reasons. But one, they felt like they could get complete control over, you know, the development of their players, which, you know, having coached there, it was always the way we always, um, as a priority, tried to develop the Carlton players so it was interesting that that was a part of their reasoning or rationale and, and then for us to go and get a result was um, incredibly rewarding for our footy club. And for you, bigger picture Josh, I mean do you dream of a return to the AFL environment and he's coaching the path that you obviously you want to keep going down if it is to be at, at that top level? Yeah, I'm incredibly passionate about um, coaching Sam, there's no doubt and I would love to um, yeah, explore opportunities to be back in the AFL system um, I had a couple of really good conversations last year and in the end I, I went down the Bullants path a couple of reasons mainly some loyalty to the people you know who've been affected by it and I wanted to see that through and then I guess the second part of that was embracing a challenge that not many people get the opportunity to embrace which is be a part of something from the ground up so um, yeah to answer your question I am pretty ambitious with my coaching um, I, I really love it I love helping people I love seeing a group prove um, you know that competitiveness that you used to get as a player I can I now feel like I get that through coaching as well. Um, but primarily it's about how you can help other people be better, whether they're your fellow coaches or staff or, or players. So, yeah, I am pretty determined and driven to, to go as far as I can in the coaching space. But um, I'm also mindful that it's a reasonably competitive industry and, and the coaching landscape, particularly at AFL level, has changed a fair bit, particularly with COVID in the last 18 months. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life, all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Well, Josh Fraser's journey from the bush to the big time, that's up next. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We're with former Collingwood number one draft pick, Josh Fraser. Hey, Josh, Mansfield, Victoria's northeast, God's country. What a place to grow up. Uh, it's a great place to grow up, Sam. And, um, yeah, a place that I still call home now and, you know, a place that hopefully in the future I'll be able to get back to and um, spend a lot more time. But, yeah, fantastic place. Um, great country town, fantastic people, um, you know, Grew up out of the town itself, so on a farm about um, probably 10 minutes out of town. But um, just, a, yeah, had a great childhood there. And, um, yeah, as I say, it's a, just a fantastic place to grow up. Did you have any siblings, Josh? Or do you? Yeah, I have a sister, so she's yep. 18 months younger. So it was just um, yeah, mum, dad, 
uh, myself and my sister. So we we lived a, a pretty humble lifestyle, to be fair. Um, obviously, Dad was on the farm and, and Mum was a nurse. Um, my sister was big into her horse riding and still is. Um, she's incredibly talented with that. Um, so she competes regularly and I was always into my football and sport um, and when I wasn't doing that I was I was helping dad around the farm as much as I could so um, look as I said we had a really humble upbringing you know um, we weren't sort of flush with money or all those sorts of things but um, yeah, I'm incredibly fortunate and grateful to have grown up in Mansfield and um, yeah it's, as I said it's a, a great place to grow up and was able to build a really strong network of friends there who are still very close to now. Mm. And what did the old man uh, have on the farm? Obviously a couple of horses. What else did he have running around there you had to help out with? Yeah, no, the horses were the vein of his life. I think my sister was, um, <laughs> she was adding a horse every six months or so. And um, in the end, there wasn't a lot of grass left for the sheep and cattle. But um, yeah, we were sheep and you know, beef, cattle and, and sheep and um, a little bit of cropping. But, you know, dad, over his time, had done a fair bit of local cartage work as well, carting hay and machinery and different things. So, um, yeah, it was a little bit of diversity on the farm. It wasn't a huge farm. I think we, we had 300 acres and, you know, at different times we'd leased another 100 or 200 um, around the area. But that was enough to keep us going and keep us occupied and busy. Now, you grew up a Geelong supporter, but how did your relationship with the game start at Mansfield Footy Club there? What what was your first experience with the game, Josh, you remember? Oh, I think the earliest experiences you tend to remember, particularly growing up in Mansfield, was how cold it was playing junior footy. <laughs> oh, um, there'd be some ice it, on the grass in the morning, wouldn't there? Mate, it, it was uh, incredibly icy and cold. Um, but like most you know, young boys at that time, and now, you know, thankfully young girls get to experience this. You, you sort of, junior footy in the country, you'd be there early playing your match, and then you'd spend your whole day at the footy club. <laughs> yeah. um, sometimes yeah. you're lucky enough to run the boundary for the under-18s or the, the seconds or the seniors or whatever it might be, but yep. um, I can't remember exactly why it was I fell in love with the game. I, I was a Geelong supporter, and um, I just took to the game. I, I watched it religiously. I could sit there and watch three or four games a weekend or whatever was on TV, Um Obviously loved Gary Ablett Senior, um, and then as I got a little bit older, I came to appreciate some of the great players at other clubs as well. Um, but yeah, I just took the footy. Um, There's just something uh, about it that I loved, and for as long as I can remember, it was something that I wanted to do. I wanted to play professionally, and you know, growing up in Mansfield playing junior footy, that was obviously a long, long way away from happening. But you have to get your start somewhere, and um, mm. yeah, Mansfield Footy Club was a great place to, to get a start. Height. Did you always have it, Josh? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. So I was always one of the tall kids, but that also came with it, with its challenges as well. I mean, um, you know, I watch my son play junior footy at the moment, and he's quite tall. But you know, there's a lot, lot of players in his team that are a little bit lower to the ground, and, and probably find it a bit easier to get the footy. And I think I had those same struggles. I think, um, you know, it took me a little while to grow into my body and, and myself and get some confidence and. Again, from memory, I was pretty lucky. We played in a pretty decent side and had some good players who were able to distribute the ball to me at different times, but always played through the ruck and, and up forward. And um, yeah, as I came through that sort of junior system, was able to grow into myself and develop a bit of confidence. Mm, geez, you would have covered some Ks there for away games and such up there in the bush. And then, of course, the Murray Bush Rangers. So how did you get a foot in the door there? Look, I, yeah, it was. Um, I think it started sort of through the schoolboys carnivals, um, you know, that, that regional, those regional carnivals and playing, um, you know, under 16 big country schoolboys and under 16 Murray Bush Rangers development squads. And I think it's very similar nowadays for, for some unknown reasons to play is you just find yourself on those radars and you get invites to, to train. And if you're lucky enough or good enough to make a squad, you, you sort of get your foot in the door and 
that was my journey and pathway. And um, as you alluded to, Sam, like there was a hell of a lot of travel. And um, even to this day, I'm thankful to my mum and dad for giving up a lot of time. And thankfully, petrol prices back then weren't as bad as they are now. <laughs> hey, the, better, better, the Macca's drive-through would have got them through, surely, I reckon, a few times. Yeah, got, yeah, got a decent workout occasionally, mate. Um, but yeah, look, it was... That was what you did, um, and, and probably young players still face it now. You know, if you if you want to pursue that, and your parents are willing and, and able to give you um, every opportunity, then um, you find yourself doing a lot of K's. And you know, I think for for training two nights a week, it was mm. sort of an hour and a half up to Wangaratta. So um, yeah, great great times as well. I mean, you know, it was um, it was just looking back. Um, some of my fondest memories of, of my footy journey were certainly that period of time coming through the. the talent system and when did the talk start to or you become aware of it i guess josh anyway that you might go early in the draft possibly even number one your draft year was 99 and was there a part of you that really wanted to go number one was that something that actually motivated you as a teenager I, yeah i think it did motivate me from from memory it wasn't um look i, I would have been i would have been happy to just get drafted um mm. and that's certainly the attitude you know looking back that i think you should take but uh from memory at the time, I was motivated to go as high as I possibly could. Um, and I think some of that talk probably started at the back end of 1998. Usually once the 98 draft was done, people would start forecasting pretty quickly to the following year. And um, I remember a little bit of talk around myself and, and Matty Pavlich and Paul Hazelby probably being the three. Um, and yeah, it was, I mean, you, you spend 12 months trying to do the best you can and put yourself in the best position and, and you try not to focus too far in front of you. But I guess um, from memory, again, that particular year, there was a lot of draft talk and um, speculation about where I might end up. And um, yeah, thankfully, uh, thankfully Collingwood saw enough in me to, to take a chance on me at number one. And how were the interviews with the AFL clubs going back? How daunting and perhaps strange were they? I mean, you've probably been asked down the years what was the weirdest question you, you might have copped. Were there any curly ones? I think Mark Williams had just started coaching then at Port Adelaide. I'm not sure if he was uh, <laughs> rolling out the weird ones straight off the bat, but what do you remember of the club interviews? Oh, look, I, the only time I really spoke to clubs was at, um, was at the draft camp. And yep. I think Again, from memory, I spoke to maybe three clubs. Um, so I didn't go through that process of speaking to a, a heap of clubs. And then in the lead-up to the draft itself, I remember having a conversation with Fremantle. Um, they had, I think they had three picks inside the top five that year. They did. Um, they, had, they, they had two, four, and five, yeah. Yeah, so they had a, they had a really strong draft hand. And I think the conversations were, were pretty short. They basically said if you know if Collingwood didn't take me, then I'd, I'd be going to Perth. So... Um, how'd I haven't feel, had a lot of. Com- how do you feel about that? Firstly, uh, no, I wanted to stay in Melbourne if possible. I, I, I didn't. Um, I didn't verbalise that. I, that was just my own thoughts that if I could stay in Victoria, that'd be a preference. And mm. again, probably growing up in the country and being a country boy, I liked the. I liked the sound of being able to get back home when I could. Um, but in the same breath, you know, again, if an AFL club in a state wants to give you an opportunity to play AFL footy, you, you jump at it and you grab it with both hands. Um, but yeah, Collingwood didn't didn't say a lot. Uh, leading up to the draft, um, I think I might have met with Noel Judkins, Neil Baum, and Mark Kleiman once, and they didn't give me a lot of indication. And then I think just before draft day, maybe the day before, 24 hours before, um, yeah, I was told that they'd um, they'd take me with the first pick. Great moment, I'd imagine. Oh, incredible, incredible moment. Yeah, for for me personally, because you obviously feel so much excitement um, that. Yeah, a dream that you've had to to go and play AFL footy has has been realised, but probably more so just for everyone around me, you know, my parents and my family, my friends, and um, you know, even 
you know, for the Murray Bush Rangers, like incredibly thankful to the Bush Rangers and everyone involved in the program at that time. Uh, Kelly O'Donnell was the coach. Um, he was a fantastic coach and he's still a, a mentor to me in my coaching. Um, so, yeah, I think the thing that, you know, when I think back, the thing that sticks with me is how um, happy it made everyone. And for me, whilst it was a great achievement, it was also probably just the start of a, another journey and um, probably a lot of hard work in front of me. Indeed. you. This is your sporting life brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Well, that journey is up next. Josh Fraser walks in the door at Collingwood. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with former Collingwood and Gold Coast ruckman Josh Fraser. So, Josh, you enter a club in Collingwood that had just claimed the wooden spoon, hence your arrival as pick one, of course, and had just parted ways with Tony Shaw. Mick Malthouse has just taken the reins at the club. What did you walk into there in the first day, first week at Collingwood? Uh... First day, first day, the first person I ran into was Nathan Buckley. Right. Um, <laughs> so I was entering, uh, I remember Dad um, Dad had a, a job to do in Melbourne with the truck, so I sort of packed the suitcase and came down in the truck early one morning and he basically dropped me off at the front of Vic Park and um, had my suitcase in one hand and I was sort of trying to find my way inside and... Um, yeah, I saw this guy walking towards me, and it was um, it was Nathan Buckley, and um, he was terrific. Sort of showed me showed me through and showed me around and introduced me to a few people, and um, yeah, then then the rest of it became a little bit of a blur, to be fair. Um, but incredible feeling, um, you know, getting to meet Mick and knowing how revered a figure he was. Um, and I think the footy club had a lot of excitement around it too. It almost felt like the footy club was resetting a little bit, um, and you know, there was a lot of excitement around the place and. Um, you know, there was a lot of hard work about to happen, but those initial sort of initial week or two, just finding my feet and, and starting to understand the landscape and, and what it all meant and what it all looked like, um, yeah, that was just an incredible time. And, and obviously Bucks is the captain, but Gavin Brown's there. The Rocker boys are playing together. Paul Williams, Scott Burns. The rebuild, as you say, sort of started, but there's still some real elder statesmen in the change room there. As a, as a skinny kid from Mansfield, she must have been pretty eye-opening. Oh, I was, and it was, um, in some ways, it was intimidating. I mean, as a you want to go in with some level of confidence, so, you know, you, you can sort of you feel like you belong a little bit, but you also you, know, you, you want to um, you know, keep your eyes open and, and, and ears open and try and learn as much as you can. And, and you're right, there was some there was some fantastic players in that locker room. Um, uh, even you, know, you mentioned um, Severio and Anthony Rocker, um, really really down to earth, welcoming um, guys, hard hard workers, and set a great tone. And then Nathan Buckley was incredibly driven, and, and Scotty Burns, you know. Still consider Scotty Burns one of the best teammates I've had. So, but yeah, guys like Paul Acuria, who was incredibly um, driven and, and hardworking. Um, and then you had a lot of a lot of guys there who probably hadn't long been at the club, like a Rupert Batheris type, um, who was, you know, he was a bit of your heart and soul. So Simon Presta Giacomo. So that, they did, you're right, they had a really good sprinkling of talent, some older statesmen, some some younger guys coming through. And um, yeah, to be in a, a change room of an AFL club as a, I was 17 then, was, um, yeah, it was pretty eye-opening, that's for sure. Yeah, but you mentioned the attitude you take in there. So what did, did you go with, were you quiet? Was there an element of sort of faking it until you're making it? I mean, what, what sort of attitude did you you bring in there? I was pretty quiet early and then almost almost felt 
an expectation to be a little bit more vocal. Um, probably, you know, I guess, rightly or wrongly, going as that number one pick, I almost felt like there was some expectation on me before I'd even trained or played. Yeah. Um, so I didn't want to be overbearing, but I wanted to contribute where I could and in the right way. And again, I'm pretty lucky that I had great leaders around me in Scotty Burns and Buckley and Paul Williams and the Rocket Boys, as you mentioned. And they were they were really supportive and, and guiding, and um, they set a great tone and example. But you know, you want to certainly want to earn your stripes, um, but you also want to uh, put your best foot forward and, and make it known that you're there to help and contribute as much as you can. And you play straight away. Your debut is in the season open around one Hawthorne. On a big 54-point win at the MCG. You have 12 touches. You kick a goal and you have 12 hit-outs. Are there any memories specifically of that first game? No, you think I'd be able to remember all 12 <laughs> touches, maybe even the 12 hit-outs. Um, well, they, they came after me a little bit, um, the Hawks. I do remember that. Um, and, yeah, not surprisingly, like I guess you always try and intimidate and, and rough up some of the younger players. But I, I do remember making my debut with a few other guys. I think Leon Davis made his debut that game. Um, Benny Johnson made his debut as well. So those guys, to share that with them was, was fantastic. But, yeah, they were pretty physical, the Hawks. Um, who specifically, Josh? Uh, Trent Crowe, I think, was, was one player who who was pretty physical towards me. Um, but then, yeah, I know Richie Vandenberg. Yeah, they had pretty combative types, the Hawks, um, nearly 2000. So, but again, you know, it was a, a fantastic day to get a result, mixed first game, a lot of excitement around the club that I'd mentioned. And, um, yeah, I think that year we might have gone on a bit of a winning streak early and yeah. then we sort of fell in a hole. Yeah, you went on a tear. I was just about to say, you won your first five games. It was enormous buzz. I can remember it quite well. But then you fall in a pit, as you say. You lose your next yeah. eight, and then you lose 14 <laughs> of your next 16. But you feature 21 times. Now, every kid wants to play, and they want to play straight away, seemingly none more so than among, I guess, today's generation of draftees. But looking back, do you feel it was the best thing for you at the time? No, it wasn't. No way. There's no way. Um, and I can I can say that confidently now as a coach, too, when you're trying to do the right with your younger players who want to play. And I, I remember my first season, we... Collingwood played in that um, the New Year's Eve game against Carlton. I wasn't chosen to play, and I remember being pointed that I wasn't chosen to play in that game. Um, you know, looking back now, um, playing as early as I did, I guess it probably there was probably a time during that season whether I played early or not. There was probably a time during that season where I, I probably should have been dropped and gone back to VFL footy and, and developed my game and, and probably my body a little bit more. But at that time, I, I couldn't see that as a benefit to me. I just wanted to play. I wanted to get out there and try and prove myself and help the team. Um, but looking back, there's there's no way I should have played um, as much footy as I did early. Um, but having said that, again, you know I am incredibly grateful to the footy club. Mick and the other coaches who did put a lot of faith and trust in me um, and they would have had their own reasons for playing me as often as they did uh, but on reflection yeah I probably through form, if nothing else, I probably should have been dropped a couple of times. And I guess being the number one draft pick, Josh, the expectation is huge, as you say, whether it's expectation you have on yourself internally or whether it comes from the outside. Now, I'm not sure if you were a footy media consumer, whether you watched the footy shows or picked up the paper in the cafe, but the expectation's obviously unfair in a lot of cases. Did you grow increasingly aware of that as your year went on? Yeah, I did. Absolutely. I think some of the one of the best um, times in my footy career were my first couple years because I was fairly naive to the scrutiny and the pressure and then I think after a year or two I became much more aware of pressure and probably some of the negativity that was around my performances and um, I guess in some ways I was my own worst enemy as well. I put a lot of pressure on myself and it became really unhealthy for me. Now, So there was a period of my career where I really struggled with that and I did at times go looking for the commentary because 
um, I guess in some silly way, yeah, if you can get some good feedback through the media, it almost validates your performance at times. So it's not a healthy place to live in, and that did affect me for a few years there. And which was, you know, again, if I'd had my time again, Sam, I would have probably better measures in place to deal with that. Um, but you know, you live and learn, and you know, players these days probably better equipped to, to handle those things. Albeit, you know, social media back then wasn't as big, but there's incredible, there's an incredible amount of pressure on on footballers. But it is a privileged position as well so you know you, you take the good with the bad yeah I can put my hand up and say I probably didn't handle and deal deal with that very well at all and I know it's only what it's we're only talking you know 15 20 years ago but we're, we're, we're a lot more educated now as a society aren't we around sort of anxiety and the mental health side of things and what we probably were back at, at this time so was there someone you could lean on or speak to did you even feel confident enough to put your hand up to get help from someone Josh I mean how did you go about it back then because the world was a different place in this space I would have thought yeah no look I, I I internalised a lot and that was probably one of my um, mistakes where I wasn't as proactive in, in trying to reach out and, and talk to different people. I did get incredible support from the footy club. You know, Neil, Neil Barn was at Collingwood at the time and he was someone who was incredibly supportive. Noel Judkins was incredibly supportive. Uh, so this is in my early days at, at Collingwood and then sort of through that mid-2000 period when, you know, I really did struggle a bit. Um, you know, we had Simon Lloyd was at the football club, so he was a, he was a great support. Um, but I, I wasn't, again, on reflection, I probably wasn't as open with how I was feeling about it all. And, um, yeah, a lot of it did sort of bottle up a little bit at times. And um, I guess your yeah, the coping mechanisms um, back then weren't as readily available as what they are now. And I think yeah, that's a good thing now that players do have much more access and much more availability to, to speak to different people and, and get the, the support they need um, because it can become a pretty lonely place when you're out of form, you're getting a lot of pressure from yourself and, and externally as well. Um, yeah, it can be a pretty lonely place at different times. Yeah, and just before we leave this subject, Josh, educate me for a moment. Is it a case of you get to the weekend and that's when this sort of stuff is peaking and maybe Monday to Friday you're with your mates, you're training, you're going home and you're socialising. It's, it sort of lies dormant, but it's more of a sort of a match day thing, even something that creeps into your mind during games if it's if it's that bad? Yeah, absolutely. For me, it was, I mean, I had I was physically ill before every game in the change rooms. Um Right. So, you know, it built up to that point where I was, I was physically sick and it used to become a, a little bit of a laugh with some of my teammates, I think, in the end. But yeah, you're right, the Monday to Friday stuff, you you can almost let your mind rest and relax a little bit. Um, and then, you know, you start to build up a little bit more anxiety as you come into the back end of the week and you're approaching game day. And um, yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a vicious cycle and you're almost relieved when you actually play okay and you're probably going in almost um, hamstrung already with your performance because you're already thinking about the worst possible outcome and you know I was able to manage it for a period of time by myself but it wasn't something that I fully got on top of and um, again in hindsight and knowing what I know now I, I would have certainly been much more proactive in, in sort of putting some things in place. Yeah okay well we're talking to Josh Fraser on This Is Your Sporting Life and it's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives We'll get to Josh's recollections of the big games and the big moments at Collingwood. That's after this. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. 
It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. And Josh Fraser is our guest today. So, Josh, 2002, it's your third season. You play every game. You kick 37-23. Impressively, three years after the wooden spoon, the Pies are in the grand final, and you kick three <laughs> in a prelim against Adelaide. I mean, what a ride. Uh, looking back, was was this as good as it got? Yeah, it probably was. Um, and again, I think being so young and, I don't know, maybe a little bit naive, you, you don't quite appreciate it. But again, looking back in terms of where I am now and the position I'm in now with my coaching, I go, we were we were just an incredible team in 2002. And I know Mick's spoken about it before. I think he's even got a photo of that 2002 team on his desk because he was, you know, in his mind, that was as good a team as he'd seen, not with talent, but just through that sort of care and connection for each other. Um, so it was a really great thing to be part of, something I'm really proud to have been part of. I'm obviously gutted that we, we weren't able to get a win in either 02 or 03, but um, we ran into a couple of pretty good footy sides that year in Brisbane and um, yeah sometimes it's circumstantial too oh, I thought in 2003 we were probably the better side um, we were, I think we won our first final against Brisbane and had a week off but you know we ran into Brisbane grand final day and they beat us by 10 goals but you know 2002 we, we came from the clouds a little bit and nearly pinched one and um, yeah really disappointing and probably again at that young age you think it's just going to happen again for you but um, it takes a hell of a lot of work to get, get to that point in the season. Just before we get to these two grand finals again how was your relationship with Mick? I mean at this time I mean, probably right throughout his coaching, famously prickly, at times impossible to find in a good mood. He wasn't a fan of us on our side of the fence. Surely, <laughs> surely he was more uh, warm and fuzzy behind closed doors with you guys. Yeah, I, I think I shared a pretty good relationship with Mick. Um, you know, I don't know if we ever connected on a, a you know a deeper level in terms of, you know, you talk, he talks about um, his relationship with Dale Thomas and Heath Shaw and these guys. They had a really deep sort of connection with those players. I don't know if we ever got to that level but um, I always had a, an enormous amount of respect for Mick and you know, I was always grateful for the opportunity he gave me um, at Collingwood and I think for the most part he was he was really supportive um, of me um, so yeah I'd, I'd consider our relationship to be, be good and uh, you know I think I think he, what he's been able to achieve in the game certainly shouldn't be lost on anyone he's been an incredible coach and contributed to the game in so many ways um, I know people tend to wrap up a lot of his career because of his time at Carlton which I think is a little bit unfair I think um, you know what he's been able to achieve over at West Coast and certainly at Collingwood was um, was pretty extraordinary the 02 grand final really does live on in the in the memory it was an amazing game tough wet one of the tightest in fact that we had seen for a while in the years prior I mean both teams played with incredible heart playing in that I can't imagine what it was like and the disappointment for going down narrowly I, I don't know whether that hurt more or 2003 hurt more given it was another trip to the grand final another loss but that one you were never never really in now I I think 2003 probably hurt a bit more. 2002 was obviously um, incredibly disappointing, um, but I, I felt that got the sense that you know we gave it absolutely everything, and maybe if the game had gone another five minutes, we might have pinched it. Who knows? But 2003, I felt like we were we were really driven and primed to have another crack at it. And again, as I said before, I actually felt we were probably the better side during the season. And then to turn up um, game day, grand final day, and, and lose by 10 goals—that was that was a hard one to take. So for whatever reason, we we 
weren't able to go and perform on that particular day. 2002 was um, was just a, a great ride. The whole thing, really disappointing. We didn't get the result. Potentially could have gone either way, but 2003 for Mum, sorry, 2003 for me was the one that was a little bit more disappointing. Anzac Day, you played on that day many times. A real occasion, some big wins for the Pies down the years while you were there. Just an amazing fixture. Mick and what he did to get you guys in the mood for it during the week. I mean, how far was he willing to go? Because we know he loves his war history. Any any interesting anecdotes of the Anzac Day week that live on with you? Yeah, not so much anecdotes. I mean, I remember one of my early Anzac days, he, he, he read out a letter from a, a soldier who was at war and he was in tears, Mick, before the game and you could see um, how much it meant to him and, um, you know, I remember as a player, almost getting a little bit choked up yourself and he had a he did have a way about him, Mick, when he wanted to. He, he could make you run through brick walls for him. He was so he was so dialed into the way he motivated his playing group and you knew very early that Anzac Day for Mick held up a real significance and again, one of his great strengths was over a period of time, he was able to educate players on the significance of Anzac Day as well and um, you know, I think Collingwood Essen and both should be really privileged and you know respectful of the fact they get to play uh, in such an occasion like Anzac Day. So after those two grand finals, the side obviously naturally just um, uh, hits a trough for a small period of time and then you're solid without being spectacular before you build up to 2010 but in the pre-season of 2010 obviously the Sydney Ruckman Darren Jolly arrives uh, in the pre-season of that year. He replaces you I think in the leadership group at that time as well. How did you feel about that Josh as a player and what were you told in the lead up to him coming in? I think Mick at the time said it would free you up to play forward or maybe even Ruck Rover but it didn't ever really work out that way did it? No it didn't and I probably knew it wasn't going to work out that way. Well it wasn't a lot of communication um, to be honest around you know, Darren coming to the footy club. Um, and again, you know, at that time, I was pretty frustrated by that. And probably, again, if I had my time again, I, I would certainly approach it much differently. But, um, you know, I understood, I understand now why they decided to bring Darren in as that type of ruckman. But, you know, I think I played first five or six games maybe as a as a half forward slash backup ruck. And I thought my form was pretty solid. Um, I do remember hurting my ankle um, at one stage that season. And I was able to get myself back up to play and or put myself up for selection. And um, the conversations were, well, you know, take the week off and we'll get you back for the following week. We go to Perth, we play West Coast. Um, I'd always played pretty well in Perth for whatever reason. So that was the plan but that didn't eventuate and I found myself at VFL level for I think the next you know five, six, seven weeks or whatever it was and that was yeah probably one of the most frustrating times in my career. I don't think I handled it that well. You know, probably need to be again a bit more proactive with, with trying to find ways to get back into the senior team but having said that too, the senior team was humming along. They were playing great footy and you just got the sense that they were building towards you know, something pretty special that year. Yeah, but as you say, you're human at the same time. So when you say you would handle it differently and perhaps um, be a bit more proactive, what do you actually mean by that? Well, literally trying to have the conversation with me? Yeah, look, I, I didn't. we didn't have a lot of dialogue in the back end of that year, and I'll take some responsibility for that. I think as a player, you need to seek some of that out yourself. Um, so, you know, I probably let frustrations build up. I kept going back to VFL. I felt like I was warming and contributing there. But the reality for me was that the players that were playing senior footy at that stage were just playing good footy. And again, as a player there, and you're right, you're human, you have emotions, and you probably can't understand why you're not getting a look in. But when I remove myself from that and I look back at it now, um, I completely understand why, you know, players that are playing senior footy, that are playing good footy and performing their roles, they play. 
play. And sometimes you just got to bide your time and, and hope for an opportunity that when it comes, you're ready to grab it. But, you know, I certainly wasn't um, as proactive as I needed to be. Um, again, Gavin Brown, who was um, the VFL coach at that time, was fantastic for me. I think uh, Luke Beveridge was a development coach at that time as well. He was outstanding. So I had some really good support around me with those guys. But, you know, I, again, probably internalised my frustration too much and, and needed to be a bit more proactive and, and find out where things sat and what I needed to do to push my case. I guess Lee Brown's suspension, I think it was in the end, that gave you the look in for round 22. And it was your 200th game, which I'm sure you were glad to get at Collingwood. But did you think, I could pinch, I could make a, a late run at this? Did you think if I play well enough in round 22, I could somehow, um, you know, force my way back into the side for, for finals? Or did you always think it was going to be in and out? Oh, I probably thought it was going to be in and out. Mm. I guess there was a flicker of hope that I'd shoot the lights out and play out of my skin and maybe hold my spot. But I, I probably knew that it was going to be in and out. Um, yeah, again, Fair enough, too. I mean, Lee Brown had had a terrific season, um, you know, backing up Darren and playing well as that forward also. So it was always going to be challenging. I actually, from memory, uh, thought I performed pretty well in that 200th, in my 200th game. But yeah, if I was coach at that time, again, knowing what I know now, I probably would have, I wouldn't have picked me either for the finals. <laughs> at the end of that season, you moved to the Gold Coast. So I can't imagine the difference between the two clubs at that time. Collingwood, biggest club, premiers as well. Gold Coast, starting from scratch, working out of the portables, that must have been chalk and cheese. I was, yeah, and that was that was part of the, um, I guess, attraction to go up there. I I'd sort of, for a fair way out before retiring, I identified that I did want to go into coaching, and I've been able to go and get some hands-on experience working with the under eighteen in the under eighteen system and different things. And, and the Gold Coast for me was a chance to go up and be a part of something from the ground up with such a young group. And I had a relationship with Guy McKenna, uh, so I know knew him really well, and it was really a chance for me to go up and, and try and help develop some young players whilst play, maybe playing some footy and you know letting them come through at their own their own sort of speed. Um, but yeah, it was completely different. I mean, to think about the resources we had up there when we started to what they have now, it's, again, as you mentioned, it's chalk and cheese. And going from Collingwood, arguably the biggest club in, in the country, to the Suns, who might not have even cracked 10,000 members in their first year, I'm not sure, but complete contrast. But a great experience, um, you know, one that I was I was keen to get out of Melbourne at the time um, and experience something completely different, and I certainly got something completely different. You played against him, but then you end up playing with him up there at Gold Coast, Gary Ablett, and he's absolutely flying at this point in his career. What were your impressions of playing with the with little Gaz? Ah, uh, he he was just someone that you know no one should try to emulate because you know what he does, not many, if any, can actually do. Um, so you know he he was meticulous in his own preparation. You know his body and and how he needed to get himself right to play. And then the thing that blew me away was the standard and consistency he played with match day. Um, I think it's probably widely known he wasn't someone that you know would galvanise a group and wasn't the most manic trainer on field, but. But he did lead by example match day. And yeah, he, he's just uh, some of the things he was able to do, um, you know, how strong he was through his core and his shoulders, clean he was with the ball in hand. And I still think he's probably one of the best uh, inside 50 connection kicks I've seen. His ability just to put the ball out in front of a leading forward was um, was second to none. So who was the be- Looking back, Josh, who was the best player that you played with, do you think? Oh, that, I find that a tough one. Buck, Bucks was outstanding. Um, Gary Abbott. Junior was outstanding. Um, I, I loved playing next to Scotty Burns. I thought he was just a great teammate. He was hard. He was tough. He, he did all the little things that probably went unnoticed. And Anthony Rocker's presence on a footy field was 
was enormous. You know, he, he the presence he had when he was at his best. When when he was at his best, I'd probably argue he was as good as I'd played with. And the best that, or the toughest that you played against. So there's some amazing ruckman in your era, early and late. Cox, Scotty Wine, Salmon, Spider Everett, Primus. Uh, Barnes yeah. was still running around there early. There's some real strength and some real athleticism in that group. Yeah, there was. There was some, um, yeah, some, some traditional uh, ruckman back then that I used to have a lot of trouble with, as you can imagine, around stoppages. Um, you know, I think the ones, you know, Sean Wren was a terrific ruckman. You know, Matty Primus for his size and strength. Um, Paul Salmon was just, you know, his ability to, to put the ball where he needed to, and he actually covered the ground quite well. Um, and I guess, you know, more modern ruckmen, obviously Dean Cox and, and Aaron Sandilands were, were the two. But I do remember Adam Goods, um, one of the years he won his Brownlow, he rucked a lot in that particular year. And mm. um, he had an incredible leap at centre bounce. He was he was quick and agile around um, at throw-ins and stoppages. And then he just covered the ground like a midfielder. So he was, he was such a challenge to, to try and combat. Hey, Josh, it's been a pleasure to catch up today. Could talk all day, to be honest. But anyone who has played 218 games at the top level and has that on the resume is a heck of a player and one who has stood the test of time in terms of their professionalism and longevity. Okay, team success eluded you, but that certainly didn't dilute your contribution to the clubs you represented or the game in general. Well done on all you achieved. Best of luck with what's to come, obviously, in the coaching space. And, and thanks so much for joining us. No, pleasure, Sam. Thanks very much for having me on. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Sporting Life. All thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can jump online to find them at tobinbrothers.com.au. We'll catch you the next time we celebrate the life of another sporting icon. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.